0: Hello and welcome. This is Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, managing editor, at advisoranalyst.com. My co-hosts are Mike Philbrick and Rodrigo Gordillo from Resolve Asset Management, SEZC. Our special guest is Jeffrey Sherman, Deputy Chief Investment Officer of Los Angeles-based DoubleLine Capital, which runs $137 billion in assets on behalf of investors. In his role at DoubleLine, Jeffrey Sherman is involved in all aspects of DoubleLine's investment management coordinating and implementing policies and processes across all of the firm's investment teams he also serves as the lead portfolio manager for double line capital's multi-sector and derivative based strategies
1: the views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com or of our guests this broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice
0: Jeffrey, welcome to the show. It's great to see you again. We're really excited to chat with you today.
2: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me and look forward to a lively discussion.
0: Awesome. So Jeffrey to kick things off here. uh, Please tell us about the arc of your career, how you got into the business, where you've been and your role at Double Line Capital.
2: Yeah. So like most people that are good financial professionals, I stumbled into a career in the investment business. Um, I started off the, on the academic route of as being a mathematician and like any good mathematician, I thought I would be a professor or a teacher at some level. And so I got a degree in applied mathematics, uh, later went on to get a PhD in mathematics and realized that was not the life for me. Uh, I was, uh, you know, not interested in physics. Um, you can't really get a PhD in mathematics without being a, a student of physics. And there was this interesting uh, lecture that I attended on the application of mathematics to finance. And so this was the the early 2000s, late 99, early 2000. And there was this big quantification, as they say, of, of Wall Street. And so I thought, you know, that's a good way to pay off my student loans, a career that makes some money. So I ended up uh, transferring out of the PhD program um, instead of just getting a degree and a, a master's degree, I decided to change career paths to financial engineering. And people at the time were like, well, I've never heard of this. And engineering is just simply applying mathematics to some field. So, uh, I got a degree in financial engineering, got an internship at Trust Company, the West, um, got hired on as I was an intern, finished up my degree. And as they say, the rest is history, uh, on the career path working. I started in a risk group where we did a lot of ex post analytics uh, helping the marketing team, uh, digest it and really understand, uh, what's been going on driving performance. And so, uh, during that, I stumbled across one arm of TCW that I thought was very interesting. Uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Jeffrey Gunlock, who was running the fixed income department and just all the analytics, all the things we saw in there were just super strong. And I said, yeah, I kind of mesh this with my background. I don't have to really forecast a lot of returns. Um, you know, you look at cash flows and it really just made a lot of sense to me. So. Um, I tried to get onto his team, and and I did. I was able to do so and transfer over there. I started working the multi asset fixed income area, or multi sector fixed income area. And then uh, the gentleman I was reporting to wrote one of the seminal papers in commodities. And so uh, I helped him run commodity portfolios for many years before we left T C W. And I joined Double Line uh, when we started Double Line. And so, uh, given it was a startup with forty five of us, uh, there was a, a lot of redundancy and a lot of roles. Uh, where we had multiple people for. So uh, when we went to launch our mutual fund business, um, you know, we realized that we came from the institutional world where you know there's no such thing as licensing. You don't need a Series Six, or Seven, or Sixty Three to go out there and do that. And so um, you know, we're we're about a month out from launch, and realized no one has the credentials to go out and sell the product that we're trying to launch. And so uh, I raised, I raised my hand and said, kind of like raising your average. I raised my hand and said, I could pass the standardized exam. <laughs> Uh, I'm happy to talk to clients. So I went and took the series seven about a week and a half later. I passed that Struggled on the 63. That one took a little bit longer to realize all those crazy rules out there. Um, but I passed it about a week later and I became our first licensed wholesaler at DoubleLine. So my first career or my first role at, at DoubleLine was a, a, East coast wholesaler. I chose the East coast cause there's more clients, more money. Figured if I'm going to go do it, I want to be with the, the best and the brightest. No offense to the other regions across the across the US, but that's why I chose that. Uh, after about six to eight months, we started getting some traction. I went back to the portfolio management side. I gave up my series seven after about eight months uh, because we didn't have a conflict of interest to be licensed and running money. Um, and so from there I was a portfolio manager in the first year. And then uh, in 2016, I was promoted to the deputy chief investment officer
3: where I oversee all those aspects. Now that is a career trajectory in a nutshell. Well done. So I, yeah, yeah. I, I did this in interviews with clients, wow.
2: you know, like, <laughs> look, if, if you're really ambitious, you could go to you know, every chief investor in under six years. No, yeah, you, you know, <laughs> you're really not I
3: mean, I'm not committed a this like, story of uh, the, yeah. the most. Right? It is great. It's great. So as we, like, I think it's just amazing that we've got, uh, Deputy CIO of, of Double Line here, and and talking about sort of asset allocation on a larger scale, and so maybe we can frame that uh, a little bit within the dynamics of uh, the expectations around growth and the expectations around inflation. We usually have those two dynamics on a um, uh, sort of a, a tar- we call it a target chart. It forms, you know, the four quadrants, which are your you know, inflationary growth, your disinflationary growth, your your stagflation, and your your deflationary contraction type. Type areas. and so thinking about the dynamics of um, asset classes through that lens, where are we today, from your perspective, in those growth and in inflationary uh, expectations?
2: Well, I think we've we've seen peak growth, and when I say peak growth, peak growth rates, right? So, yeah. um, nominal GDP is growing in the double digits right now. You know that that takes the inflation component into account as well, but. You know, we're we're just seeing crazy growth numbers out there in the marketplace uh, that are because we've got you know, essentially unprecedented policies, both from the stimulus side, as well as the physical side. And I think everybody's used that phrase unprecedented, right? Is that what yeah. you're talking there? No, no I, it I, looked like a cat. Jumped there. It, <laughs> yeah, do you want to start off? Yeah. No, or, can, or, no, no, you know. no way. Okay. So, you know, <laughs> when, I, when I say unprecedented, you know, I think there's been unprecedented use of unprecedented, right? So, you know, that, that, that's kind of uh, how we've thought about it. And, Right now, you know, there's no signs of the U.S. slowing to where we're going to contract, right? Are we going to slow in our growth rate? Absolutely. Um, because, again, remember, in the long run, you have potential for growth. And absent, you know, similar stimulus levels we saw the last years from the fiscal authorities, it's going to be difficult to replicate those results. So I, I want to remind everyone that prior uh, to the pandemic in March of 2020, the trendline growth was about 2.3% on real GDP. That's coupled with an inflation rate that was kind of stubbed to, or let's we'll call it roughly 2%. So that got you to a nominal GDP of about 5 right? And so, I'm sorry, uh, that got you to it four and a 45 So I, I do think that as we look forward, though, I think there is still some pent-up things in the economy that, that can keep the growth elevated. And, and what those things are is that, we still have a labor force that, that needs to come back to work, right? So there are 10 million jobs available. Uh, if you look at the JOLTS data, what the job openings data that the Fed uses. Uh, but we still have, you know, 15 million people that are receiving some form of unemployment benefits. Now, will the 15 million people replace the 10 million? Not like, right? Not likely because ultimately there's a labor miss or skills mismatch within the labor market. However, we've all been productive today. If you look at where... The trend line GDP is we went back to trend growth, right? After the massive contraction we saw last year, and we've done it with fewer workers, right? So if you look at the workforce, the labor force, there's roughly eight and a half million or so people that are that were employed pre-pandemic that are not employed today or and that are actually defined out of the labor force. So what that means, we've been a more productive society. And is it because of technology and the likes Probably, right? And so what you see is that the growth rate is likely to contract, but you're probably going back to not that two and a half percent, but I'd say in the next year or so, we're looking at like a four to 5% real growth rate. Why you still get a decent earnings growth. There's that potential for the labor market to come back and you're also seeing higher wages. So that higher wages gives people more money to spend, right? You know, the, you know, the formula from there. So we have been heavily relying on government spending. And I don't think that's going to subside. The magnitude will subside, but we're still talking about trillion-dollar plans that are forthcoming in the new budget. And I'm talking about trillion-dollar deficits. So, all in all, the great the growth equation is there at least for the next 12 to 18 months. Now, the inflation argument is a bit, the uh, inflation component is much more difficult to distill, right? And if you listen to the proponents of the Fed, uh, they're going to tell you it's transitory. Um, if I look at my TV screen right now, David Rosenberg's on there. He's going to tell you we're in a massive deflation. <laughs> and so there, there, I think there's a push and pull component within inflation. And so if you look at the headline number, it, it's kind of scary right now. Uh, people are cheering the fact that CPI went from 5.3% year over year to 5.2%. Wow. Right. That's what we're going to cheer about. Uh, but ultimately, you know, there are things that are transitory within there. Uh, what's what's challenging is used cars, right? Used cars are likely to remain elevated for a period of time because we still have the supply constraints that are coming in a new car production. Um, and so that that's a market that hasn't supplied today. But if you look at what's rolled over, things like airline tickets, hotel prices, leisure. Now, when I say they're rolled over, they're not growing at the rate they want, they may be staying foot. So I think what's happened is inflation had a baseline reset, and these prices aren't going to diminish in most cases. Now, when I think about other pieces of inflation, as though, as those kind of transitory components, leisures, hotel, airline, um, we don't see any signs of those really rebounding from these levels. So that is transitory. However, I talked about the wage costs part of the equation, right? Yeah. The lever force, uh, margins getting squeezed because of that. There is no end and inside in that right now. That is a positive sort of inflation though, right? Because if you think about wages increasing, who does it help the most? Typically, it's the lower income strata. They are consumers by definition. They're not savers because they don't have enough to go around. So this could still lead to a little bit more inflation over that kind of medium-termish behavior. Also, the supply side I'm talking about with the used cars and the like, those supply chains are not going to get rectified in the next quarter. It's gonna take 12, 18, 24 months to rectify those as we redefine them. Listen to President Biden. He's talking about building new manufacturing and more jobs here to help control them. So I think as you you look at the changing dynamics, the supply picture, uh, I think that that's gonna ultimately lead to a little bit more inflation as well. It will cure itself over a longer period of time. It'll be offset slightly with higher wages, which helps the consumer, But on a real basis, maybe the consumer isn't doing much better. Lastly, is the is the big controversial point is the housing market. Uh, If you look at the Case-Shiller data or the FHFA data that came out last month, what you'll see is that you have record prints there, right? I mean, the record print, 18% year over year growth. One, that's not sustainable. But secondly, if you look at rents, there's a lot of pressure on rents as well. If you use the Zillow data, which we like as one of the best time theories out there, or I think there's, there's another one, that's like apartment price or apartment rent, I can't, I can't remember off the top of my head. You'll see that those are, are probably in the high single digits. So after the rent moratoria, they expire right in various areas. You're gonna see this reset. Remember rents take longer to reset because it's when lease gets renewed or the rent gets renewed that you see that. Why I point that out is that even though we're seeing high single digits in rent prices, and you're seeing the housing market do high teens type of growth rates. The year over year number and the inflation data on something called owner's equivalent rent or rents is roughly two and a half percent. Now you don't have to be very good at math to understand eighteen percent is different than two percent, right? Yeah. There's a big big gap there. Now are they going to converge? Likely no. They'll converge at some point, but not likely to eighteen. So as the housing component and housing is almost 40%, I think it's 35% of core CPI, right? That is going to put some inflationary pressure. It's got offset more than all those transfer components that are either being flat or declining. So I know this is only one question and I've spent what seems like 10 minutes answering it, (laughs) but the inflation picture, it's much more difficult to distill. And I think that you see this year a mid to high 4% CPI number. Pretty easy to do in the third quarter here. So we forecast way more quartering than that. But I think next year, inflation will go down. The growth rate will, but that the inflation rate will go down. However, it's still going to be in the low to mid threes. So as you start to look at it, that makes you scratch your head now at What am I finding attractive about a 130 10-year, right? What's so attractive about that? Unless you're a deflationist, unless you really think that the world is going to melt down, and again, September has been a little rough for the months for risk assets as it traditionally is. And so there's some some reasons that you could see that in the short term, but purchasing power is very important for investors. And so so many things, you know, when you think about the growth and the inflation side, it makes you scratch your head about the bond market.
3: Yeah, and so what is what is an investor to do with, with that portion of their portfolio, that 40 in the 60, 40 portion of the portfolio given exactly the the problem that you lay out you have inflationary pressures and you've got this 40 percent of the portfolio that's yielding half a percent call it on average
1: yeah yeah it's 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 challenging
2: so uh hopefully you're not buying bonds that only yield half a percent um if so we we've got some solutions for you mike <laughs> okay <laughs> we've got a little bit, bit there, there. we don't have funds that really yield something north of the inflation print right now. right Dude, you mean you have to be extremely aggressive. And so, you know, can you find assets to do that? Yes. They're called triple C high yield bonds, right? I mean they're the, <laughs> the junkiest of the junk and you just gotta hold your nose hope they don't default. So you'd be <laughs> smart and clever there of shares. That's why we run, you know, private placements and things like that. There are things you can do there. But to the average investor, you have to pick one of two paths. Either you hold your nose and you move out the risk spectrum on your fixed income portfolio or you say, I'm going to be good enough for now and I'm going to use it as a ballast and an offset to other pieces of my portfolio. And so I don't really recommend the former, right? Because that gets dangerous, right? Mm. Everybody's smart. Instead, I'm going to add for the exit. I'm going to be the first one uh, for the exit when things start to deteriorate. Uh, And that doesn't usually work well. So what I think about is what, what do you think about your growth and inflation forecast? So, If you come back and say, look, we're gonna have a four-handle growth and potentially a three-handle inflation, that tells me a nominal GDP. You know, I can I can put some ranges around, let's say six to eight percent. Eight's pretty aggressive, but six to eight sounds reasonable to me for nominal GDP next year. And if that's the case, and I'm doing a three percent inflation rate, do I really think that the bond market's priced well to absorb that? That is, as the Fed steps out of its asset purchase program. As they start to get concerned about the level of inflation, they start to hike rates potentially. And that, I don't think hiking rates is on, on the docket for the next 12-plus months. I think it's like a 2023 issue, potentially at best. And so what's that mean? Well, you know, as they step out, you get the largest support of the bond market leaving. Potentially, that puts a little bit of pressure on rates. And so what that means is you have to manage your interest rate risk. So what I would say is that either you go and you buy a BCO portfolio that's a deflation hedge. It's called 30-year treasuries, right? Uh, there, there's an ETF for it out there. I don't recall the ticker off the top. I can't remember if it's TLT or TBT that people use. One long, one short. Be careful when you buy it. Make sure you know the right one. Like, hey, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you said, don't buy b and uh, But, you know, you can buy a little to that flow to give you that offset for risk off. But why not generate some higher quality income? And so you can find things in the bond market that are duration assets, um, things we like in Friday are things like the securitized market, backed by the housing market, for instance, strong market. They can be backed by the commercial real estate market. Commercial real estate isn't just, you know, strip malls in middle America and office space in New York City. Remember, commercial real estate is the new economy as well. There's data centers, warehouses, telephone towers. They all benefit from from the structure. On top of that, you have multifamily family housing. It's another way to play the housing market that's strong. Uh, also, the loan market is interesting. Uh, bank loans come with below investment-grade ratings, uh, but they yield in the, the mid-twos today I mean, on a decently diversified portfolio. Um, if you want to get, you you can get it to the 3% range, right? Nothing wrong with that. Um, if you believe that the economy is going to stay strong, and by buying a diversified, you don't really worry about the default risk. The higher market doesn't offer as much value unless you're an idiosyncratic investor. And again, I think it's loaded with a lot of, uh, essentially, it's loaded with a lot of the below, in fact, the, the sub sad, sad, the triple C, the the uh lowest rated tier that's driving the bulk of that yield. I mean, there are probably bonds that yield in a two-half. I mean, you know, it's not really high yield at that point. It's yield, I like to call it. Rodrigo's agreeing with me shaking his head. Um, but. At the end of it, you can actually go to the CLO's market. Now, this is not for the average investor, but you can get it through well-managed funds and the like. CLO's just package up bank loans and redistribute it out. You know, you can buy triple B bonds in that area that, that have three-handle yields. If you want to take risk, which we like in that market, WBCL yield, as CLOs yield almost seven today, right? So there are ways of doing that, but sprinkling it all together in those kind of more on traditional areas. But you need to balance that out with a little bit of treasuries, maybe a little bit of agency MBS, which is really just an interest rate trade, right? Uh, in the market, you got be careful about the agency market. There's a lot of prepayment risks today, just given the dynamics of, of what's happened there. But in general, you can do things on the shorter part of the curve. So what are we doing? In general, I'm buying kind of that belly of the curve, medium type duration assets in treasuries and an agency MBS. And I'm borrowing that with credit. Right. I have a little bit of bias towards credit over that rates trade. I have enough rates to kind of balance out the portfolio, but I'm buying that that credit has shorter duration, right? So the credit I'm talking about in the security type space has a two year duration, three year duration, bank loans blow, CLOs blow. So what we're talking about is our credit exposure is not to the back in the curve, it's to the front end of the curve, which doesn't have a lot of interest rate risk while it's shorter. But secondly, that front credit is not likely to reset anytime soon. The Fed's got to get out of tapering. They got to get out of asset purchases before they even start hiking. And the two-year will tell you a lot about that. So and we're buying the two-year bond that yields like 20 basis points, like clockwork, right? There's ways of buying assets that have similar interest rate risk. Yes, you take some credit rate risk, but you can barbell that together. So I think I, I like lower duration strategies, but what they're not going to do for you is protect that purchasing power. So what do you do, Mike? You look at yeah. the 60% to get you there. Okay. And as long as you don't have this massive stagflation,
3: let growth coupled with moderate to high inflation, that equity side of the component can really help. And on the inflationary side or on the inflation side of that, how do you see uh, commodities playing into that overall structure?
2: Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of the commodity market still. Uh, we've had a good run up, uh, in the commodity market. If you look at something like the BCom, uh, which is the broad commodity index, um, it's really struggled to break this like quadruple top it had, and it did just recently. And as I was telling the team, be careful there, natural gas is 13% of BCom and it's been on its tear. Uh, it's since uh, relinquished, I think it's down probably at least 10% the last couple of trading days, but you know, be careful of looking at that. But if you look at the broad basket of commodities, they're getting close to that kind of quadruple top again. And so if you think about that and you go back and overlay this chart with the US dollar, right? You think, okay, commodities are getting kind of strong. There's gotta be weakness in the dollar. This is in the face of strength in the US dollar. That's not, not a lot, but you know, the, the DXY index that you know, people look at, you know, it's up a few percent over the last four months or so. And so if you think about how well commodities have done in the face of that, in the face of a narrative that we have this global slowdown, in the face of the Delta wave, commodities have done relatively well. And so when you look at the supply side of the equation, what you find is that the supply side is not ready for a global reopening, right? The, the demand story, the demand story has been a bit in China uh, last year. This year, it's been the U.S. Uh, but who hasn't participated? Well, the Eurozone, Asia, and the rest of the emerging world. So once the vaccination rate increases, or we get to the dreaded first unity the hard way, uh, one or the other, you're gonna see a reopening and that's gonna cause for more demand side of the equation. So if right. you say, okay, yeah, you know, that's great, Jeff, but can't they just bring production? Well, the 70s want you to believe that, that they can just put the straw on the ground and and mm-hmm. up the oil and it just comes up, they just get 20 million barrels a day. But at the end, what you'll find is that it takes time to bring this online. There's been more discipline in producers in the U.S. specifically, right? Remember, heavily indebted with the shale revolution, the bulk of the I market at one point was made up of energy bonds, right? So what you've seen is more discipline there. And even with oil back to $70 a barrel, yeah. we're not seeing a lot of supply come back online. So I think that oil can can flirt with with a with a you know reopening of the global economy, triple digit oil again. The camp buy prices always high price. Then you think about the displays or off. I mean, here in California, I was in New York last week. I was amazed to see three handle gap uh, we're close to five up here, and in the high price there. I mean, we're a highly taxed state; we know that. But man, it just feels like pain. As, as, one, as one analyst asked me the other day, "How how come in two thousand uh, in two thousand and eight, oil prices hit one hundred forty dollars a barrel, and gas made five bucks? Now here we are, at seventy cents, seventy bucks a barrel, and it's back to five bucks." To which I said, we're actually forty seven, just to be a, a smart aleck there, uh, but also. There's been a tax regime, but also it's the production side, right? It's, it's the production side of the equation breaking a down. Also look at the mining sector. If you look at the metals, the industrial metals too, if we're going to have a global expansion, which it seems like everybody wants to have, you're going to have this dynamic where that's a supply chain that can't come online quickly. You know, how easy is it to to drill a hole in the ground and mine for poor? Every time you mine, buying, it's a little bit more difficult, right? The marginal cost goes up. Secondly, it takes three to five years to bring a mine online between the digging, the, the paving the roads, the smelting plant to bring it. In. And by the way, Mike, don't forget, there's that input cost of energy to do the smelting. So what you have there is really a bad dynamic in the industrial metal. So even though we've seen some uh, relinquishing in prices and things like copper, we're seeing new lies in things like aluminum, right? Whereas the rest of it called the Aluminium right? You see the nickel prices as well. So I like, I, I like the oil sector. I like the, uh, I like the industrial metals and unfortunately food prices are likely to continue with climate change. The way you see it, no matter how you shake out from that, it's destroyed a lot of our crops, crops globally. So from that perspective, only in a basket of commodities, is pretty dang attractive today. And if you believe the dollar goes down, and if you think that there is going to be more global competition, I think the catalyst for that is the reopening of Europe. That'll put pressure upward on the euro. And when that happens, I think companies are set to take the next leg up. Is it this new secular bull market? I don't know. It depends mm-hmm. on how you define it. Uh, but I do think that the setup is there. And it's a good way to play the inflationary component
1: as well. You know, I was... about the...
3: Uh... Oh, go ahead, Rod.
1: Yeah, so this is actually quite a timely discussion because this morning we re uh, played a clip that we, we had with Chris Schindler from, um, he used to be a teacher's and he used to be the uh, tax class allocation guy, at at um uh, teachers, uh, pension planning in Ontario. And he was talking about commodities and discussing why do commodities tend to, to trend? What is the underlying reason why commodities do this? And he talked about it from the perspective of operations research research, right? Order of operations. How, how does, uh, How do you deal with queues and lines? You have a couple of cashiers that can handle one customer every minute and you get on average a customer a minute, but you add some stochastic noise there where they're coming at different times. What you end up having when somebody comes in before the minute is a longer and longer queue that then have to be relieved by the cashiers over time. Eventually it'll clear and and the, the traditional markets, when you're talking about businesses that have only a few cashiers, is that you can modify your supply. You can add cashiers fairly quickly. However, in the commodity space, you cannot add cashiers very quickly. If there is a increased demand, because as you mentioned an opening up of the economy, the ability to add cashiers takes three to five years. And that's why these these things tend to trend. And of course you have an oversupply problem three to five years from now. We have too many cashiers, and now you're, you're, getting, you're clearing people faster than a minute and you end up trading, uh, or trailing over a, uh, a negative trend. So certainly the, the quant element that, that Mike and I represent is quite in line with your analysis right now, you know, there's going to be.
2: Yeah. And you know, he's obviously a very smart guy if he's Nord stochastic, right? So, I mean, <laughs> that, that's the, that, that's the key thing, but you're absolutely right. And for those who don't understand that dynamic, the, I, I, I say happened with just in time inventory. Right. Think about what's happened in markets out there, and we're all realizing that today, that it was great to be able to rely on your supply chains and your suppliers to give you stuff overnight. But when that breaks down, you have significant risk. And the other thing about the inflation component, and it's all that same topic, Rod, is that what you find is that what we haven't seen yet is a restocking inventory.
3: Right. Yeah. We
2: us talk about that. Uh, I mean, that's a huge piece. Even though people are trying to, and businesses are restocking, it's getting sold out uh, almost instantly, right? Or very quickly. And so, you know, for those that are in the deflation camp, typically, if you see a high-level inventories, that's the signal, not the fact that you have depressed inventories, right? As long as consumption depressed inventories are only deflationary, if we're mired in a recession, which I don't think any of us would think here that we're in a recession. Because remember, the NBER came out uh, I think it was in July, they came out and said that they declared the uh, recession officially over. And the date of that recession, it started at the end of February of 2020. And in July of 2021, they declared it over. That dated to what day? April of 2020. Well, thanks, NBER, NBR for that clear signal <laughs> and, and spending another 14 months to tell us that. Uh, but I think that your, your metaphor analogy of the cashier is perfect for the commodities market. And one thing I want to touch on, and I think Mike and I were talking about this before we started, is people look at the commodity futures market and don't really understand the signal you're getting from it. There's a lot of misconception about it. And so when the commodity market trades in what's called backwardation, it's just a fancy word like stochastic that makes us all sound academic and 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 to pick on your word there, but I have been a mathematician I took a lot of stochastic calculus. But what you see is that backwardation just means that future prices are lower than current prices today. And so when you first look at that, you would say, The Rock thinks prices are going down. No, what it signals to you is low inventory. There's more supply than demand and the market demands a higher clearing price for that commodity today. The opposite, Contango does not, when it's an upward sloping term structure, does not forecast prices are going up. But indeed, said it's an oversupplied market. The equilibrium point further out is there. And that's why, if you actually look at commodities, if you invest long on the curve, so if you get 12 months out of all those positions, you have to save a lower volatility point than if you invest in front. Month. Mm-hmm. Why is that? The market clearing takes place. Yeah. All bad things and good things happen at the front month, right? Supply comes alive. Well, let's say with Nat gas, we have huge climate disruptions, right? That we've seen with the hurricanes and the likes. So in general, I think that when you look at the, the backwardation throughout the commodity complex, even on like a naive index basis, and, and we're biased, we manage portfolios there. But if you look at it, it's some of the best backwardation that you've seen um, in, in probably 15 years. And so from that dynamic, that is a career to investors. If you buy a futures, Price that's in the day and prices don't move. That means you will up the price curve. You make money from that position. So I think there's a big misconception about that. And when you see backwardation, you should, you got to think about it though. Is there a reason it's that way? Is it like a lot of futures where it's just a massive shortage on the front end and it's going to clear itself together? So uh, I, I really want to take a uh, pause and really take uh, a shot at those people that are saying the commodities market is weak. Look at lumber prices. You know, uh, to look at these one or two commodities that have been down, if you look at the basket of commodities, the only thing down month over month, last month, you know, if you look at the basket that goes into CBI, it was actually buffer. So I think, you know, people need to really take a look at that and understand the setup that we have.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: How are you seeing uh, precious metals play into all this, Jeffrey?
2: You know, that that's a tough one because I think the precious metals have one that has in and that's called cryptocurrency. And, and why I bring that up. You can't have a podcast. without talking about crypto. Nope. Uh, you, you can't have a discussion. I knew we had to get there. That's right. No, I thought you'd. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, but you know, the, the thing about is that, you know, then I'll start with that one is that it has a new found, it has a, 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 traditional buyer. That's found the crypto market. The people who don't trust the government think the inflation data is simply higher. Um, they're using crypto in some of those ways. So again, take, take what you want out of that. Um, but. In general, I think that gold is a little bit challenged. I still like earning gold. I think it has, you know, what I call biblical street cred. You know, it's worked for, you know, many thousands of years. You know, uh, if you look if you look at the other other things that were in that biblical reference, they haven't done so well, um, you know, but the gold has continued to hold on there. I, I think you play the gold trade, play silver. Uh, I like silver better because it has a higher band to inflation traditionally because of some of those industrial components. And the gold to silver ratio is pretty, pretty elevated. Um, and even though it's off its high that ratio, it still looks pretty attractive today. Then you had the platinum and palladium too, and some of that feeds into the catalytic converters on autos. Look, we're still going to have the combustible engine for the next decade or two, or maybe ten. You know, um, you know these technologies and you know, electrification of cars—it's going to help. But some of those metals need to go into that process. Obviously, copper is a big component in there. Uh, lithium and, and, you know, things that people trade on that side are, are pretty attractive for the electric uh, electrification trade. But, you know, the precious metals, I, you know, they haven't responded well to inflation, right? You haven't really seen that recovery there. Uh, but I do think if you see this kind of medium-term weakness in the dollar, it will kick back in. But uh, of the four, I, I really like the silver trade the most. Uh, they it the poor man's gold, uh, but it has twice the bulk. So you got to size it accordingly. So if you're a traditional gold investor, you went to half of what you would do um, in, in gold in the, in the silver component.
3: And how, how do you see ESG playing into all this? We've had you know a long discussion about commodities, about copper, nickel, everything that's dirty and has been a part of the, the, the carbon challenge. How do you see that playing out?
2: Well, it, that's a very complicated question. And it's complicated because you said ESG, but really what we're talking about with commodities is E. Yeah. Right. And, and I guess <laughs> some of the social fabric to it, especially if prices go up, especially on foods, but where's the G in it? There's really no governance really on that side of the equation. So you're really talking about the E. I'm sorry about that. Again, the... not to be, uh, you're right. damped, you can dig into it. Tough but, enough. you know, and I, I asked the question is that, you know, if we're going to electrify, we're going to have to pollute to get there. Now, should we yep. do it? Absolutely. Should we try to protect the environment? You know, there, there's a guy by the name of Ben Hunt who put out the, you know, Billion Tree Project, where he's he's trying to do a hundred billion, you know, a hundred billion trees planted a year, you know, and they had some scale of there to get to a billion trees in 10 years. So it wasn't a hundred million, it wasn't linear. Uh, but I mean, it's 10 billion and he starts at a hundred. it's a lot of trees. Okay. But if talk about the lux and what it takes to offset the emissions for a, a vehicle, and you're talking like 40 years of one tree. So it's not something we're gonna cure overnight. Um, but I, I say beware you know, of a lot of people peddling ESG. It sounds good, we all wanna do well, but is it really there, right, in the process? And so, yes, there are some people that do it extremely well. Uh, you know, someone sent me a VC bun that's only on these newer technologies, trying to be ESG-friendly. And so I, I think it has a place, but it's not the end-all be-all. If we really wanna fight this stuff, we need it from the political level, right? We need to get together to do it. Not just the investors need to do it. Yes, the flow of capital needs to move in the right direction, but I, I, I I'm challenged to see why ESG should generate a higher rate of return, right? I think it actually generates a lower rate of return because we've bid up the price of those assets. Think back to the low-ball funds when they came out, right? When they got really popular. They've been around for 30 years. You know, the betting against beta factor. I think, uh, what, what, I can't remember, is it Sharp or Markowitz? Someone wrote about the 70s, right? That on a sharp ratio basis, you know, the low-ball outperforms. And so what you find, though, is that when those became very popular, they were outperforming because money fl- flowed into yeah. them. And so when you look at it, I think there is merit to it. So I don't want to dissuade anyone from doing it. But also, don't what you're buying, a lot of them just have ESG stickers on it, and they own some of the worst polluters in the world. Well, how can they do it? Well, you know, uh, Exxon, they divested. yeah, it's Exxon, oh, no, it's Texaco Chevron. They divested this plant in, um, or this mining, uh, sorry, mining. this drilling field in Alaska, right? Because it's a bad polluter, right? So they get kudos for doing that. It's great for them. Again, no, no disrespect to what they're doing. But then you go, who do they sell it to? They sold it to a wild <laughs> in Texas, right? And again, double fits to more wild guys. People in Texas, but <laughs> the guy's doing it, it even worse. The emissions are like two x what it was before. So, is it in better hands now? Or are we better off? And so, you know, this little you know electrification uh, of vehicles, it depends on how we generate the electricity. So, well, like, I I don't have any ESG centric funds today. Yeah, but one thing I've <laughs> done is that actually. And how I had someone coming in to finish out my solar install, so there you go. Everybody's trying to do their part. I think mean, that's a better thing. Yeah. Yeah. We can think about it. Uh, should it be the end all for end all be all for investors? I'm not convinced. Yeah. And when I look at ESG on the equity side, when I find it's highly correlated to the quality bait, it's really the G that's driving. And again, I think the S is important. We saw that a fabric of society changed last year. Think about the social injustices that are coming to light. They've been systemic for many decades. You're starting to see that. So I think education, being better people, and fourth heroine's mind. I think we all become ESG over the long run, right? Because it's better for society. Yeah. And so I think that that's the goal. Remember, and of course we're capitalists and capitalism needs of regulation, otherwise to
1: become blunt fraud. Well, it's yeah, certainly interesting right. to see sure. everything that you just said is absolutely true. And uh, and if if you put your ESG hat on, you're going to be able to participate in that and see how it goes as it grows. But you, as an investor, if you put your investor hat on, and we do have a similar outcome as the in gain beta, that low volatility aspect where a lot of money flowed into it. You know, they kept pointing to their performance and ESG is going to continue to point to their performance. So if you invest in ESG, if you're a responsible investor, you can do a lot better. Now, I don't know what part is true, whether it's the actual ESG or if it's money flowing in because it's popular, regardless as an investor, it's something to think about from the momentum aspect of things. And hey, you never know, you might actually educate yourself on that uh, and start buying some some solar panels for yourself as well. So it's, it's, it's an interesting space for sure.
2: Yeah. Well, I got tired of, you know, power is in here in California. Mm. You know, that's another thing, yeah. but, you know, we seem to have all the time. We hear fire season as well. So I'm kind of concerned about that component, but I, I think it's, it's, there's a lot of evidence that said something's going on with the globe, mm. right. And you know, the carbon footprint is heavier and heavier. We know we're changing the dynamics. And so I think that that, to me, that's the key thing it's like. Look, am I going to go out there? Uh, think about SIN stocks, right? Um, you know, if you follow Shira, Shira law or, you know, you're an anti-STAN, you know, you're a search and you're stressed, they avoid it like the grave. Well, wow, what's one of the best performing stocks in the last 20 years? Tobacco. It's, it's tobacco, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Some of the best bonds, it's tobacco litigation, right? Because people <laughs> avoid it. And when people avoid things, it creates incremental risk premium. Again, not saying that you should build a portfolio of nothing but polluters and like social injustice well, friendly companies. If so, applied by gold miners, you know, that things could be the worst companies and all know that they're polluters, um, but you know, they don't have that social injustice component. But in general, you, you got to ask what you want for things. And so, you know, if you make better returns elsewhere and you can do good elsewhere, isn't that really the same thing? You know, and again, you know, I think hmm. pressure on companies, it needs to cloud from society. You're seeing that, right? The social justice movement to me is a big piece that doesn't get a lot of merit in the investing world. Why? It changed behavior. Think about the all star game for baseball. I know no one watches it. We had one of the best competed all star games because they actually try, right? The pitchers are not going to up home runs. They just want to get, right? It's actually one of those where they actually try. It got moved because of some of the policies going on in Georgia, right? Yeah. Then you find these things that it, it takes all of us to work together. And it's, and it's not just like, oh, I'd feel good because I bought an ESG, but what are you really doing
3: to change that dynamic? And what, what do you think, uh, so on the environmental side, coming back to that sort of solar and wind is not going to change it. Do you have any thoughts on nuclear or how that can play a role in this or any, anything from that commodity side? A very narrow commodity, obviously, but any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I don't really have an opinion outside of that. I know we've decommissioned a lot of the nuclear plants here in California. I had a friend that worked at San Onofre, um, and, you know, they they, they shut that down probably five or six years ago. So, uh, you know, I don't really... I'm not a physics expert. I don't really understand the whole fusion component and everything. And so uh, I'm going to take a pass on that. Yeah, no problem. You know, I think uranium is super popular. But to Rodrigo's point here, there's been a lot of fun flows. Look at those two eating Oh, I know there's been a huge increase in that. And so again, I, I think we need some of our Canadian
3: friends to come on to talk more about Uranium, yeah. the nuclear control. I think like, like absolute power, fund flows corrupt. Absolutely. And it's just <laughs> the flow of going <laughs>
2: <laughs> like, uh, My Mike, further to that. If fundamentals come home to roost, you know, uh, over the long run, technicals will drive markets in the medium term, but absolutely. Money flow is the most important thing. In short-
0: and it doesn't. Jeffrey, uh, you run you run equity strategies based on uh, cyclically adjusted PEs. Um, what is what sort of insights are you getting from your strategy?
2: Yeah, it's it's starting to finally signal that value sectors are are becoming cheap um, or cheaper. There's nothing absolutely cheap out there in the market today. You know, I was listening to uh, Chanos on TV this morning. He's one of the few guys I'll turn the volume up for um, you know, legendary short yeah. investor. And he's talking about, you know, uh, one of the casinos, I won't name it. And just how, you know, if you look at their Chinese operation in Macau versus, you know, what you see in the U S investment walking to it is the 90 ratio. But if you look at it, well, the blank, like 70% of revenue is coming from Macau. So if you value it on that basis, it, it trades like a 25, 30 multiple. So I, I think what you have to look at is businesses and viability here. Uh, what we're seeing is, is the cheaper parts of the market are things like financials, right? Why are they depressed? Shape of the yield curve. You know, there's been some regulation there that, that's driven that. Um, and again, it's been highly correlated to the rates trade in the last three or four months If the curve's flattened. Um, it, they've struggled a little bit, not to mention just banking uh, pressures out there. Uh, but also we've seen things like beats that screen a lot, screen a lot cheaper, um, which a lot of people wouldn't suspect. Uh, we've seen healthcare as well, which is kind of a traditional value sector. And for the first time in a while, we're not invested in IT, uh, in information technology uh, through this profit. And so, uh, you know, it's gotten to where it's more expensive than it had been. And so mm-hmm. you start to look through the data, what it's helping us is that it seems to be a more value-oriented market. And I've been on my rates hat, and I look at, you know, 130, 10-year, and I just, I'm plus now. As we talked about the query out there, you know, it's technicals, fund flows. Fund flows come from none other than Jerome Powell and his cronies, right? The technicals are, we got rid of the the, the, specialized, the special leverage ratios, the SLRs for the banks. They had to buy higher tier one in the, the first quarter. They started buying treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, right? That put some pressure in there. In fact, mortgage spreads got super tight. We got to some of the lowest weight we've added in our flagship fund in like decades in agency MBS for that reason, just they got ugly uh, from our perspective. We've since been buying a little bit more because those spreads have widened out. But what you see there is that dynamic covered with House Bill in the believe market, but there's a so and you start demand from foreigns. That's more true fund flow. So you put all this together and that got us like a 40 basis point rally in the 10 year over the course of... So, okay, you know, most people missed that. You know, we, we didn't really get on board with that trade. And now we just think that they're, they're, the, the rates market has been really, really narrow out there. And so if I put on my raise view, I look at inflation, I look at nominal GDP growth, it says that the 10-year, all of that fundamental work we do, shows the 10-year view somewhere between two and a half and three years. Okay, that's what it has something to do with that. You know, uh, Bernanke was famous for saying QE took about 60 to 75 basis point off the term premium. All right. So that says, okay, maybe we should have a two, you know, to, to 250, $10, right? Something like that. So we're a long ways from that, right? But if that happens, some of these value stocks and value sectors are really going to have their day. And so I think that's what I believe right here. Uh, it's quite yeah. a different view than most people think about, uh, but it really sits into, again, being an alligator someone has to look at all asset classes. I, I think it's how you think about it. And remember, the rates trade is a value trade, therefore, right? I uh, look at tech when rates rally, tech gets hit. Now you have the Chinese news that's, you know, that, that's something else. We'll leave that for another discussion. But in general, uh, you're starting to see that there are signs emerging that maybe the value strategy does
1: have some more legs. Well, maybe you should have sounded yeah, a little bit for the lesson. We have this discussion at times where uh, we talk about the correlation between value and rates, but Maybe talk about why it is that growth stocks don't benefit from a rising rate environment or period.
2: Yeah, it comes down to growth and that's the, the, the misnover of growth stocks, right? When growth is scarce, growth does better. When growth and- is plentiful value, things that are cheaper do better, right? Because there's a broad participation. And so that's what's missed in this. And if we get a reflation trade, that means the scarcity of growth um, it is subsiding. Think about the last decade. What have you had? Thread scarcity. What we had last year a growth scare. We have that technology on the growth sector that really helped bail things out too. If you look at something like the NASDAQ last year, right? So a lot of people don't realize that that reflation trade is a value trade. In fact, value is higher related to growth than growth stocks. And again, I do think it's a misnomer on how people do it, but the growth comes from you know what you're paying for the multiple, right? You're paying for growth, and it's usually a scarcity premium than necessarily the value side of the equation. People think when growth is scarce, you want to own value. No, it's typically the, the converse. That's my simple explanation.
1: I don't know if that works for you, Ravid. Well, what do you what do you mean by um, sc- b- scarcity and growth? Maybe unpack that for me, because I didn't quite follow.
2: Right. So, when you have a low growth environment, you look for sectors that can outgrow other parts of the market. Right. So, you want the things that grow faster. When you have this kind of an a depressed valuation, typically that means that you've had a challenge environment. But when you have a reflation trade, that is, things are coming back. No, it's not value dead. What once you know the idea that growth was going to come roaring back. The anecdote is: look at the data from you know roughly. Uh, a week after the election, right, when we actually got the results of the election, right, um, to, you know, the end of the first, when we're getting this big, great boom, that's what valuably really took off. And so what I mean is that it's certain pockets that are growing. Now, can your sector turn from value to growth? Absolutely. But think about industrials, which aren't necessarily classified in the growth sector, right? We didn't have, right? Think about things that, you know, you have high capital intensity for. Those tend to be more value oriented uh, because you pay less for those dollars. Right,
1: that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So So I I I mean, the way the way I'm understanding it, okay. The way the way I'm I'm sort of hearing it is that is that you know in in the time when uh, the economy was in question, tech stocks did extremely well because I mean for example because there was a sort of uh, low growth outlook uh maybe even deflationist because and interest rates were being driven down and because the tech stocks are high duration they're also being driven up. That that's a better point
2: too. That this may simplify it, Rodrigo. He nailed it there with duration, right? So if you have a high multiple, that means you need a longer time to get your money back. That's what we call duration in the bond market. And so value tends to be a shorter duration asset. And therefore in a rising rate environment in the bond world, you want to hold shorter duration assets than longer duration assets. So that's like the bond. Now, I, I feel like I live too much in the bond world that I'm always trying to use those analyses. So is bringing the back there. definitely <laughs> yeah. the duration of the cash flows. And if you pay 40X or 50X, it's a long time to get your money back. I'm going to say, well, it grows, it grows, it grows. But if you're paying 40X for that, remember duration, very simply, it's the present value of the cash flows. How long does it take you to get your money back, right? And if you think about it from that concept, that's the that's the kind of uh, fit, uh, the interpretation of duration versus the mathematical one. And that's exactly uh, what Pierre's pointing
0: out there on the technology sector. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so when, as you said, um, when the vaccine news came out, uh, all of the growth targets changed and there was an outlook that rates would start rising. Right? They would recover off the bottom. And then as re- they recover off the bottom, y- duration assets would suffer. Yep. And that was the. Saw, yeah,
2: yeah. Right? You saw bonds suffer and uh, you saw the shorter duration sectors do quite well. The bank loan market, the high yield market outperformed investment corporate bonds. Now it's morphed in, in the second quarter, right? And part of the third quarter is longer duration assets, right? So, same thing. You see tech booming again. Um, you see investor-grade corporates kind of outperforming there. Although duration hasn't moved a lot the last couple of months, we've been kind of mired in this range. We broke out of the range last week, and then we get this growth scare you know, out of China today. And you know, a lot of people say in the canary in the coal mine, or you know, they're using uh, the analogy that this is the leave-in moment. I do know how many in moments I've seen in my career. Um, I only remember one of them actually uh, but it's talked about a lot. And look, is, is there some, are there some ramifications? Absolutely. Guess what? You know where the bonds uh, on on? Um, you know the bonds traded today? What, what's what's I can't remember. The names escaped me. Was it Evergard? Is that the name of the company?
0: Uh, Evergrande,
2: Evergrande. Evergrande. Yeah. Evergrande. <laughs> I, I don't know. I tried a whole day with that name. I can't spit it out. It's nothing but a headline. I can't remember it.
0: Uh, I think if you go to Starbucks, I think, I think if you go to
2: Starbucks, they might be able to help you. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> uh, but the yeah. thing is that whenever you swans were trading before today, 20 cents of the dollar. Do you think this is news? Sure. Yeah. There's some headlines about it? the other day. Guess not. So the, the sovereign entity is already looking to bail them out in some capacity, right? So look, it's like the Japanese were in the 80s and early 90s. They're going to bail out the real estate industry. So like, it, it's a contagion strip. It's over to a few more names. They can give us a little scare, but don't, don't forget, you know, there, there's a lot of money backing that, 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 that entity and it's called kindness balance.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. They're not going to let that. Yeah. Happen. The question is whether it's systemic in the way that Lehman was systemic. Right. And this is what people forget. It might, it might've it, been as big. It might've been levered as much as Lehman, but the interconnectedness of that Lehman market, well, whatever the mortgage fast securities were. Was a global issue in a capital market. We're dealing with ever grand, ever yeah. growth, ever everything it was a, then you it was might be able to protect too, right, by the this people.
3: A, a different time where where regulators and government agencies are far more willing and able to intervene at levels that are unprecedented. Look what they did you go. recently, right? That was emboldened mm-hmm. by what happened with Lehman. I mean, they were emboldened by all of the things that they've done in the past that
1: worked. Which allow them to bail us out. Then they're going to bail themselves out now. Um, and, well, also, you think about it like it was ever
2: ever Grand <laughs> You know, EG. We'll call it today. You know, look, there's going to be you know some some knock on effects from that, no doubt, within the Chinese real estate market, mm-hmm. right? Because people are going to run for the hills and see it. You know, when you have almost two trillion dollars in debt, they did that. But also, what they do, they're not just a real estate company. Right. They say in the into financial services, they're a tech company, they're the everything to everybody. So, you know, this is one of the challenges of running those type of businesses is, is that they essentially gave up all their cash flow to grow, grow, grow. And very few companies can do that. And the only one that comes to mind is Amazon, right? They're the ones willing to take a short-term loss to do that. But they didn't do as much as fast as EG, as
1: we're calling it, did statistics. <laughs> Again, I don't, I don't know how to say it. I, I was quite aware have an I think it's gone. to oh, remember a grande, so, a grande so. or venti or something like that. A little Starbucks <laughs> yeah. humor, but <laughs> I think I, like, what is the largest cost? venti, tea? that's why trying they're trying to pay the They wanted to go <laughs> venti, <laughs> yeah. allowed by the Chinese government. You could tell a bit Starbucks consumer. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I just go to the kitchen, man. it. it. right from alone, uh, that's the one thing I miss is the cop at work. I actually had to start buying coffee at home. So, I think that's yeah, happened to all
0: of us. Jeff, you actually run a really unique equity multi-sector equity strategy, right? I mean, it's based on uh, the the cyclically adjusted PE ratio, and then you apply that across all the sectors. And then, uh, how, how does it how does it work? Because you, I mean, it, it, it's it's a it's been a quite a successful strategy, and. And like what are the without without giving away your secret sauce, of course, um, you know what what do you what do you think is the uh, what are the mechanics of it in a nutshell?
2: You know, in a nutshell, what you find is that you know, sectors of the market are treated very similar to individual stocks, even before the meme craze, right, or the Reddit Army as they called it this year, right? People love certain stocks and they low others, right? And we find a very similar aspect within parts of the market. Now, I used earlier industrials, right? What's the old adage in the U.S.? What do you hear from people across the country? You hear that we don't make anything in the U.S. anymore. I hear that all the time. We still have an industrial sector; it's just not what it was 50 years ago. We still produce cars. We still we still produce copper and iron ore. We build buildings. We do industrial activities, and so that narrative is more overpowering than the fundamentals. And so what that means is that there's a behavior aspect to it. And one thing that we saw when we looked at the research from Professor Schiller on this was that you couldn't explain the excess return of this type of strategy relative to the S&P by just distilling it down to factors, right? The first thing I thought of, it's just a value strategy, value, 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 don't bore me with those details. And so. When our analyst, one of our analysts ran the, the data on this, I said, no, you can't get that. You get all this residual return, is alpha. So they'll, they'll get the QMJ, we we'll get the BAV, the betting gets better, the quality factors. Let's throw the low kitchens, so they got it. And by the way, did you do it right? Send me the data. That's always, when it, when it doesn't, look, uh, doesn't look right to me, that's the first thing I asked. And then I said, wait a second, I don't, uh, this this. there's something there. And so as I looked across it and, you know, the team started to dig into it, you know, we started to think about this, like the behavioral components. We looked at what did it own in certain periods? What were the themes? What was the thematic trade of that year? And what you find is that the thematic trades, they work as, as they're burgeoning, right? The ideas, think, you know, think bell as we said, think the cannabis stocks, right? Think the mean stocks. When, you, when they take off and they start, that's when you want to be in them. By the time everybody knows about them. They're usually kind of done in their trade. And so what you're essentially doing is counter trending some of this stuff. So it's value from that component. But the other thing I gleaned from it is that why can't growth be cheap? Why can't you get a period where growth sectors actually cheap, right? And so applying a valuation metric to the sector was something that I'm sure someone else has done, I just had never seen it work that way. And so what we found is that, you know, it's an interesting idea, but we wanted to be an active manager that's in our blood. So I can't actively manage around this idea that Professor Schiller had. He's too smart for me. He's got it, it works, I like it. So when we decided to do was let's do this synthetic, let's get a swap on this exposure and let's do what we do best. Let's run a fixed income portfolio underneath it. And to my point earlier, just put a short duration asset, right? Run something that's not exposed to long in the bond market, because if we have a growth environment and that typically means higher rates, your bond portfolio is gonna do poorly. So keep on the front end of the curve, do what we do best. Let's allocate across sectors to the market. Let's find the best ideas on the front end of the curve. And don't be just wedded to owning treasuries or, or owning investor corporates, but open We own a bunch of market debt in it. people always come to me and go, how can you say it's in a low risk portfolio? What high quality corporates that are primarily investor grade with short duration? Hmm. Sounds like good companies to me with a bad address, right? So yes, it has a little bit of an fault manage that point and they size accordingly. So what we ended up doing was build the bond portfolio our Objective is to do, you know, cash plus 150, 200 basis points per annum. And if we can do that, we can out that outperforms our funding costs, our swaps. And what that allows us to do is be a creative structure. So you're indexing, right? Or you're smart baiting, if you like that phrase, but I'm doing smart alpha on the bond side with my team that allows us to try to outperform. So that I have no problem with you indexing, right? But remember, you're always going to underperform none of the fee, right? unless you get a negative B ETF, which I, I love the marketing hook of those, by the way. Negative fee for the first year because you're going to forget to sell it when the fee goes to the high level <coughs> better, right? Um right? The idea is to turn all over there. So if this process can generate 100, 200 over, we can do something like that as well. All of a sudden, you have something that could do two to 300 over an index, which is not stop change. And so that's what we tried to do. Uh, we don't, we're not successful every period, but no. in generally it's, it's been a long fane track record. We're doing it for almost eight years now. In fact, next month will be the eight-year anniversary of this so,
1: so Jeffrey, just to be clear on the, uh, what you meant by the swap and, you know, making sure that you can make returns over the funding rate, you're getting full 100% exposure on the portfolio to underlying uh, factors and then, or basically you're buying an actual bond portfolio and using that margin as collateral, that those positions as collateral to buy the, um, the factors, the factor swaps and yeah. how much so exactly. So what, what type of leverager generally, I know that's a bad word. I love it. We love it. We talk about it here all the time, but what would you think the notional would be on the, on the two stacks? I know exactly what it is. It's hundred percent, a hundred percent. Right.
2: So I'm a hundred percent fund, right? You give me money, Rodrigo. I put it in this bond portfolio and some cash. I own some treasuries that I hold my nose, but they allow, um, they allow me to do margin and stuff like that. Um, I build this portfolio and then I go out and get a hundred percent exposure to this index. This index is a systematic process that gives me exposure to four sectors of the U S large cap equity space. So my, my economic exposure. Is always you have two hundred percent if you can use that jar Kim. leverage. I have a hundred percent invested in bonds and cash, and then I use that as you said to collateralize. I don't margin it because I keep the money. Yep, there's a key difference there. So I put it on the balance sheet. I collateralize the swap, and so my counterparties allow me to do that swap unfunded. Right. So I have no counterparty risk up front, and then we can move collateral around as we need to uh, to earmark against gains and losses in the portfolio. So as the equity notion, uh, sorry, the equity market goes up, I have an embedded profit in my swamps. So now I'm only, let's say I have hundred dollars in my bonds, hundred dollars in equities, but the market goes up 10%. Now I technically have 110 in equities, right? Cause the market's up 10%, right? But that 10%, I'd make the counterparties or they're obligated to, they're not scared of me, but we negotiate it up front. They're supposed of collateral. So we sit on that cash and just sits there. It's earmarked against those positions. We don't touch it. We're not allowed to touch it unless they default on us, but that allows us to always make sure we're, we're essentially roughly a dollar. For
1: well, Jeffrey, you just made my list of stacked return portfolios. We just wrote a piece called that cool. returns, uh, <laughs> how to, uh, how to provide, you know, excess returns in a low return environment. And what I, what we did there is we sourced a bunch of mu- uh, mutual funds that have embedded leverage in it to do this type of thing, the, yeah. this portal Alpha or whatever it is. And uh, you guys had not made the list. I had no idea you did that. I think, I think not enough yeah. practitioners so, are being see, loud. And I, I uh, knew that because it is quite a, <laughs> no, quite I, a value. I, I, did but,
2: but it, point they make your screens get a small fund. You're probably searching for funds
1: under Tinville or over. 11 Oak, we're just a t- it t- really is just <laughs> it really is just tough to find that 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 clear marketing that says we are using thoughtful diversified use of leverage mm-hmm. in order to create a stacking return environment that that doesn't you know that doesn't limit you to well, um there's a tag of- side to it as well obviously yeah, yeah. no for well, sure also yeah.
2: you can do, yeah. if you if you love this you know and you and you know what you're doing why not sell some calls against the S&B against if you really want to stack Right? If you want to do it and maybe we'll do something like that one day and I'll I'll let you take that idea and run with it. But why not sell a few calls on, on an index base if you think you have a smarter mousetrap, right? And you can often, you don't sell the whole portfolio away, sell 25, sell 30%, (laughs) sell 10, whatever you need to get just a little bit there. As long as your basis is pretty tight between what you're selling options on and the portfolio, it's not a bad idea. The risk to this, as always, is you have a liquidity event. You had something like March of last year, investors thought we were crazy. Right? Bond portfolio, high quality bond portfolio goes down like 6%. Stock market
1: goes down 30. There's the, oh my God, you're leopard. you're leopard, you're leaving. You me. got a 36% draw on, down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's
2: like, oh my gosh, what have you idiots done? And give me all my money back. Fortunately, or fortunately at a webcast, probably about three weeks later, and I'm like, look, if you like this strategy, the bonds are dislocated. The price is impaired. The bonds are not impaired. There's wrongly here. And if you believe we're going to recover the bonds, that's 6% of alpha just sitting there, right? And if you have any semblance of investment in the strategy and so, you know, again, you know, coming off the bottom it's easy to say, look, we outperformed. We definitely underperformed the S&P for about five or six weeks there. But Chuck, just watching the bonds come back, I mean, a lot of it was kind of a no-brainer. Again, folks like us that know what's in the portfolio, it's harder for an advisor or someone to do that. But investors in the strategy, we told them, look, it's a great time. This isn't just because we're down. Here's why: this was liquidity. This is not structural default environment. And look, we're not we're not epidemiologists. We don't know what's going on the, on the you know on the on the um, the pandemic front. What we do know it's cash flows, and the cash flows don't look in especially with the liquidity that Fed just gave you. And so we're going to get through this. Could I tell you the bottom warp oil will take 12 to 18 months to come back. Little did I know it will be six, right? So, you know, there's times where, you know, these type of things work. You just got to be careful. That's where you have to be careful and how you stack those. For, for sure. You know, make sure they're not highly correlated, right? That's like, my, you know, Mike asked me earlier, the 40%. You know, you want high high yield, the pairs of U.S. equities. Yeah. But when bad things happen, those sides are going down. So you're, we call that the Texas hedge here. You know, it's, it's a phrase that's used long <laughs> and long. long. Yeah, you get a perception of diversification, which you realize you're exposed to the similar.
1: Things. Exactly, it ends up being uh, equity markets in drag at some point, right? But uh, with slightly different recovery profiles. <laughs> that- yeah.
2: Yeah, and if we did still, yeah, so that's why I don't know again,
0: these plans in Texas are going to come after, me with all this, yeah. we're all, we're all in trouble now. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to hit back, you know, at the, all the migration from, from your home state to, yeah. uh... You know, you point that out though, I was attending
2: my, uh, graduation, it was in Texas and we were, you know, it was the, the area before and for some reason, at high school graduation, they don't give you drinks beforehand, which I strange. The only party I've been invited to is about a cocktail hour before the graduation. And someone there, it's a, it's a rural area in Texas, and they said, look at all the people migrating from California. You know, look at all the bad things that happened. And it was in a strong Texas accent. And I said, you can have them. We got to take me a piece of business. <laughs> Wait till they get there and they bring the things to, to see you. Uh, you may not be as happy as you are today with that. So, um, you know, again, uh, uh, kudos to our friends in Texas, taking those people, uh, you know, I still live in the high tax regime
1: here. Um, you know, and it looks like there's no, there's no inside in that, but there are some benefits to living in California. I was just thinking that this morning, uh, as everybody left California to Texas, how, how Texas all of a sudden becomes a much more liberal state, um, If you don't believe it, look at, look at Austin, right? Austin, Austin Austin, Austin, is very, very very much
2: And look, you know, none of us are a fan to pay more than our half of our income in taxes. I know Canadians do it too. Like there's, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of places out there, but at the end of the thing about Austin, the infrastructure is lacking. Walk, there's no taxes, right? You know, there's nothing to do Now, granted, some of the... In LA, they look like there's no. <laughs> I mean, we did the four It was on it was, the, you know, there's all these things about doing it. It was called uh, Karmaged. They shut it down for two days twice. Um, you know, where people are taking flights from Ontario from, uh, Boeing to LAX, which is like, I don't know, maybe thirty miles at most. You know, I was a Boeing flight, fifteen, just to get over that hill. It's like you you can go around. And there's another way to get there. But anyway, um, you know, so they all have, they have things, you know, uh, I think people get upset with the politics, which I think we're all tired of politics in general, but, you know, there are some benefits and at the end of the day, like I'm not here voting for higher taxes, but, you know, I, I don't complain too much, you know, I'm fortunate for what I have and, you know, look, um, let, let's, let's all, that's only all better to one another, but I've only complained about something, it's the divisiveness the, the in this country and people, you know, not treating each other with respect and equitably. If we could do that, that would be the message I'd want to get across to people versus all the other things we argue about in politics. So give me a leader like that, that tries to help everybody and, and tries to do that. And, um, you know, potentially we could have a better place. Jeffrey Sherman, felt so, I feel, do it. I, I, I know I, I, will no. not, I will not, I will not. So <laughs> well That'd be <laughs> <laughs>
1: I've heard that. Chamath, yeah. Everybody, I was listening to the All In podcast, there, which I know is famous in the uh, West Coast, and trying to push poly Hapatia. an old Canadian dude trying to run for governor. Yeah, some interesting, yeah, great ideas. He's got some great. Ideas. He's got great ideas. He's got some wacky ones, yeah. you know.
2: And, and you know, look, I mean, kudos out there? He sticks his neck out, you know. Like he's made a ton of dough, you know, being an entrepreneur, and you know. Look, there's, I, I don't fault people like that, you know? And, and look, you know, if you had a, a, a front bike on me all day long, I, I would have a lot of enemies too, right? Say something that's gonna offend somebody. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're all trying to do the best we can. And, and that's part of this business too, right? Be a good investor, help your clients out, listen. And that's what we try to do. We build strategies, not because, you know, we're gonna put some label on them. I mean, if I fought the smart beta moniker, you know what? I just I said make culpa at one time. I acquiesced and just said, look, this is ubiquitous. No one knows what the hell it means. Right? The you know, like I went with SMAP Venom Revolution, you know, and I'm like, no one knows what it is. It's just quant investing. Okay, just stuff. Mm-hmm. If you know I call it that, great. And the you know, where I really did the where I acquiesced the most. So I hosted a podcast, I don't know, about five years ago. And I'm like, hey, Smart beta meets smart out, right? If you want that left setting, and just try to add some value around that smart beta process, which is that spread. Right. On. Right. Yeah. So, you know, lip, some things you embrace, some
1: things you can't fight city hall and you have to accept it, right? Yeah, no, I love that. I, but, look, that, that good language good. game, that language game is, is absolutely crucial. I remember cliff assets also railed against it, right? Eventually you have yep. to, uh, yeah. He, whatever is accepted by the public that gets some them, makes them feel better about diversifying into things that seem, you know, to be useful. It's not a bad thing. Uh, yeah. Well, there's a couple of things about that. One is, is that if you really want to see how caustic that
2: clip can get, um, look at the presentation we gave to the Q group in the early 2000s against Bob. and, you know, if you Google those together, Q group and all of that, you will find an amazing presentation and, you know, he, he even has a little jab at, at Siegel in there, you know. But in general, like, uh, you know, Cliff is a brilliant man. I would never want to get him on my bad song. Oh, my God, no. You know, <laughs> who does he what he does, he's sharp with the tongue. Uh, but as you said, the nomenclature is important because people embrace it. And I used to want to die on the hill for things like this. And I have a friend who's a linguist, and he's fluent, like, dozens of languages. I mean, dozens, like, and things that aren't related. It's not just, you know, it's like, Spanish, Italian, Latin, and like all those. I mean, he, he knows Arabic, he knows, you know, Hebrew, he he knows English, you know, and feel free to always mention enough. but you know, he teaches these things. And he told me once that you don't get caught up in, in that nomenclature because society defines what words mean and how you use them. And so the one I'm still really against is advisor with an E. That's yeah. that all the time now, a style guide. Yeah, you know, a double line says to use them. I'm like, no, I'm like those are the things. <laughs> but you know, the thing about you know doing all of this is that you know if if you build the things you think are useful, and you listen to client feedback, you listen to what people want, um, that's what makes you a successful investor too. Do the things you want to do, but package it how they want to listen. You can think of a brilliant strategy, but if no one wants to buy it, you're just going to be another academic. And there's
1: nothing wrong with academia. <laughs> I'm learning how to say stochastic less after this model, for example, <laughs> all right? I'm never going to do that. Yeah, I mean, no, that, 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 that's right. I was like, that's exactly what Mike's been telling me for 15 years. I am finally going to listen because it didn't come from Mike. Yes, you know,
2: you <laughs> core. you keep them simple, you listen to people and still, you know, be honest, you know, don't go out there. Don't slap a name on something that doesn't belong, you know? Don't try to taste bad, stick to your knitting, do what you do best. And look, it'll make you a good investor. You know, if you're an advisor out there and you're listening to this, you're still listening to us after this random conversation, it's very, (laughs) sympathetic in nature, right? Mm. And you're asking, what do I do to be a better advisor? Listen to your client, right? Listen to what they need. Listen to how you can help them. Your first conversation should not be, this is what I think you should do. It should be, how can I help? What's on your mind today? And that's what I've learned through travel over the years, listening to clients and building things is trying to listen. And it makes us be better architects of products and design, right? Because it's not that you're just giving them something you don't believe in, but if those two things can end the Venn diagram
1: overlap, that's how you have a very successful business. Amen. can get very much behind now. On that note. Yeah. yeah. Jeffrey, that was amazing.
0: Thank you.
2: Yeah, so, oh, so much you covered, stochastic processes, commodities, mm-hmm. equities, fixed income, currencies, um, how to save the world via ESG, how to be a better person. <laughs> I feel like it's a wrap, fellas. What do you think? I agree. I've to see everything. Well, thanks for your talking. Okay. I really appreciate Check spending pre- time with you guys today. Hopefully, we answered some questions. Hopefully, the advisor community gets some uh, use out of this and, you know, it makes them, you know, at least think about some of the ideas we put out there today.
0: Have we got one last question? Hit me. It's another would you rather question. Okay. Would you rather spend a week in the past or a week in the future than why?
2: You know, <laughs> I think I, I'd rather spend a week in the future. I probably live the past, right? Unless you're talking about someone else's past, right? <laughs> I mean, we are, we're all a function of our own experiences, right? So, yeah. I'll give I'll that a spoon for thought. Think of, think about a colleague, think about a friend, think about someone you just met and you, you say something like, wow, I can't believe you think that, or I can't believe you said that. And you have to remember that not everyone had the same experience you. In fact, no one had exactly the same experience and path as you. And so from that perspective, we're just all a function of our own experiences. And so I'd rather see the future and see what it holds. And I think it's a beautiful place. I think we learn. I I think we, we continue to, you know, adapt and there's been a lot of reports of the demise of society, a lot of demise of economies, and thus far they haven't become true. So I'm going to bet on the human ingenuity, the human spirit, and I'm going to bet on society, right? Because that's the social fabric, the roots, the words, the same, it's social. And so we all can get together for better causes. And so remember that's what society is. So the short answer is I'll take a week in the future. And I'm gonna assume it's a much better place
1: than it is to. Fantastic answer.
0: Love it. Shazam. Thanks. That was great. Thank you, Jeffrey, for sharing that. And uh, thank you so much for your uh, amazingly valuable time.
2: All right, well, thanks, God. I so was... appreciate that. That didn't even seem like it was an hour and a half almost. So thanks for having uh, the interesting dialogue and I wish you guys all success. Here is we're to you as well.